welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and today we're going to have joining us uh, one of the voices of white-tailed deer uh, across North America. I've got on the line Mr. Kip Adams, the Director of Conservation with the Quality Deer Management Association. Kip, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Hey, thanks for having me, Christian. Uh, Good to be here. Hey, man. uh, One thing that I look forward to every year, uh, it's a great resource for anybody who loves uh, white-tailed deer. You guys just put out your 2018 white-tail report and lots of really interesting facts and figures and information in there, and there's a ton for us to dive into. Absolutely. Uh, it's the 10th uh, copy of this, so we certainly look forward to doing them. So uh, I'm glad you like Christian, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here for us to talk about today. Well, let's start out uh, talking about some big trends in the deer hunting world. Um, you know, one thing that I'm seeing is that when it comes to the age of the bucks that we're harvesting in, across the country, we continue to be killing uh, older and older age class of, of bucks, right? I mean, that's something you guys are really seeing uh, bear out in your uh, harvest figures that you're getting from the states. Yeah, it's amazing. If you take a look at, you know, a decade or two ago, you know, just that uh, the yearling bucks dominated the buck harvest. Um, over the last three or four years, you know, that is just so different now. And uh, for the last three years in a row, hunters across the U.S. have harvested, uh, you know, a buck that's three and a half or older uh, for every yearling buck that gets shot. And uh, that statistic is kind of plateaued out right at that. So uh, for for a long time, the percentage of yearling bucks in the harvest dropped each year, and now it's about a third uh, of the total buck harvest, which which is a great place to be. Um, nearly a third or two and a half, and you know another third that's three and a half years or older. Um, that's just amazing that the hunters are able to, to have those opportunities today, and uh, so it's a pretty cool place to be for deer hunters. Yeah, and the cool thing is, you know. Um you know, there are states that have been known as trophy deer hunting states for a long time. And then there are states, you know, I mean, a good example is here where we both live in Pennsylvania. Um, not that we haven't always had some big deer, but it seems like we're seeing more and more uh, bigger bucks, some older bucks, even here. Um, and I'm looking at some of the stats, you know, Pennsylvania ranked uh, in 2016 second in the country at the number of bucks harvested per square mile. We were at 3.3 bucks per square mile. Michigan was at three and a half. Um, And so even in a state with, you know, a high hunter density and a state where we're we're taking, you know, quite a few antler deer, even, even states like Pennsylvania, thanks to antler restrictions and maybe just a little bit of a shift in attitude on the part of hunters, uh, we're seeing more older deer, you know, even in places like this. Oh, yeah. And, you know, as Pennsylvanians, we're really lucky because if you take a look at, you know, only Michigan shoots more bucks than we do on a per square mile basis each year. However, we still kill, you know, a lot of really old bucks here, which which is very nice. And as you know, that was not the, the story all that many years ago. So uh, hunters in Pennsylvania have it pretty good with regard to just numbers of deer that we're allowed to shoot each year. But, uh, yeah, we continue because of antler restrictions and, and hunters just willingly passing some of those deer that would be legal to harvest. You know, not just killing two-year-old bucks, but, you know, three, four, and, and five-year-old deer. So, uh, you know, it used to be you had to go to South Texas or Saskatchewan or, or Illinois to kill an old buck. And uh, that's really not the case anymore, Christian. Man, hunters in, in any state in the country have the opportunity uh, to, to photograph and hunt some older deer. So it's a pretty neat opportunity. Yeah, for sure. You know, one thing that's jumping out at me here, you know, and again, people who are listening, you know, throughout this show, uh, during the show, after the show, you know, if you're not at a computer while you're listening, you definitely want to get on the the QDMA website, which is QDMA.com, and you can call up the full report. There's so much information in here. I'm just looking at, you know, top five states for buck harvest, and Texas at... 
almost 400,000, 399,487. And then your next closest state is Michigan at 196,000 and change. So you've got Texas as the leader and twice as many bucks being killed per year than the number two state, you know, and then you got Wisconsin 156,000, Pennsylvania 150,000 basically. Uh, That is amazing. I mean, I know Texas is a big state and it's known as a trophy state, but you know, how come Texas is able to sustain such a a high you know, buck harvest? Is it because of the intensive management that so many properties do with their whitetails down there? Well, that's part of it and and part of it is just so darn big. You know, uh, they have deer throughout the state. So a lot of deer, a lot of deer hunters, uh, a great deer management program down there. So, uh, yeah, and they certainly kill a pile of deer. Um, you know, but that brings up a good point. And uh, obviously Texas is way bigger than everybody else. So that's one of the reasons in this report we also show those statistics on a per square mile basis, try to do a little more apples to apples comparison and let some, uh, particularly some of the smaller states, see how they rank up, um, you know, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, et cetera. So uh, even though Texas kills the most bucks every year, um, they don't even make the top five list, though, for bucks killed per square mile. And, uh, and in fact, we kill more than twice as many bucks on a per square mile basis in Pennsylvania as they do in Texas. So uh, we, we allow hunters to take a look at these stats like that in a few different ways just to see uh, what's going on. But as much as anything, we try to make this fair of an apples-to-apples comparison uh, if possible. Now, you know, one question that I would have as an avid, you know, deer hunter, and I'm sure all of our listeners would too, is, you know, you're somebody who's instrumental in gathering and compiling this data every year. And obviously, you're, you kind of have your finger on the pulse of, of the deer hunting world on a day to day basis. Is there anything that you're seeing in the data that tells me where, like, the up and coming states are in terms of, you know, where, where is deer hunting really improving? What are maybe some places that aren't, you know, on everyone's radar in terms of quality deer hunting where you're starting to see some trends that are very encouraging? Well, uh, social media is so big today that uh, it's hard to have a sleeper state anymore or even a sleeper area of the state just because, you know, everybody is sharing pictures or the trail camera pictures or harvest pictures. Um, so I don't know that there's a real sleeper area anymore. Um like we have in the past. However, I think that more hunters than ever before have opportunities at some of these older deer simply because so many hunters are just passing younger deer and enhancing habitat and letting bucks get into some of these older age classes. So, uh, you know, the, some of the traditional states that you talk about, like Wisconsin and, and Illinois, um, obviously they still have huge deer there, but in many places or cases, you know, they aren't as good as, as some of the other states out there today from either over-harvest of uh, those middle age classes of bucks, and like in the case of Wisconsin, they shoot a far higher percentage of yearling bucks than any other state in the country today. So uh, I think part of that is CWD related. You know, we're just seeing some of older bucks dying off and, and more younger bucks, but uh, you know, Wisconsin hunters kill way more one and a half year old bucks than anybody else. Um, however, um, I do think there are some states out there that just don't quite have the notoriety of, of some others with regard uh, to, to older bucks, and, uh, and that makes it pretty cool for hunters. Um, certainly places uh, in Ohio, uh, Indiana, and other parts of the Midwest aren't as historically looked at as, as trophy states or deer states where people are killing just giant older deer. Um, but hey, like even here in our home state of Pennsylvania, I mean, look, we shattered our archery uh, record this year. Uh, and the cool thing is it came from public land. So uh, I think that makes that even more cooler. Well, how do you know that? Do you actually have a harvest breakdown on public land versus private? Oh, no, no. I just mean uh, that uh, our archery record uh, whitetail in Pennsylvania that was just confirmed. Oh, you here. mean the individual deer? I thought you were talking about a full uh, yeah, individual deer. harvest. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I didn't mean it total. Yeah, unfortunately, Pennsylvania doesn't have a breakdown of exactly where it was killed on public versus private land. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that particular deer was, was harvested on public land. Oh, yeah. And you know what's funny is um, I actually purchased uh, two articles from a young guy uh, who lives out in uh, western PA. His name Bo Martonic and both he and his girlfriend killed a whopper bucks on public land and they were hunting like Allegheny National Forest 
And I actually just yesterday in the Pennsylvania Outdoor News saw another giant deer that came out of the Allegheny National Forest. And that is not the kind of deer habitat that you typically associate with really large trophy class bucks because there's very, very little agriculture up there. Uh, so that's kind of neat to see as well. I mean, you just, uh, just deer are getting old up in that area. That's for sure, and we're just seeing a trend in that across the Whitetails range, which certainly lends itself to, to hunters everywhere having the opportunity to kill some of these older bucks. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about the antlerless harvest, because that was one thing that, you know, really stood out in this year's report. Um you're seeing uh, a major decline in the annual antlerless harvest, and you know it's really a trend that goes across uh, a lot of the country. What's going on there? Yeah, the antlerless harvest is, is down again from last year, and, and way down over time. Actually, it's, it was down 11 percent from the five-year average, and it's dropped big time over the last uh, 10 years. And, and part of that, well, I think there's a couple things. With one is uh, you know, a decade ago, a lot of states were harvesting antlerless deer very aggressively to try to balance deer herds with the habitat. And, uh, and a lot of those deer haven't balanced, so some agencies are now backing off on the, the prescription for antlerless harvest. So some states you know, are just purposely shooting fewer. However, we have a lot more predators we've had in the past, and uh, so our fawn recruitment rates are, have really dropped over the past two decades. We just don't have nearly as many fawns surviving as the past. Um, a lot of habitat issues. We've had some big disease issues. So there's just a lot of things that are really impacting deer herds right now. And what it's what we're seeing that almost play out is in the analyst harvest side. And uh, there, there are still some states killing a pile of analyst deer. I don't want to make it sound like everybody's not. But uh, across the board, analyst harvest has been declining for the past decade. And uh, what's amazing is it's dropped to the point where we've almost returned to the 1990s for analyst harvest. And uh, 1999 was a landmark year in deer management because that's the first year that hunters shot more antler bucks than antlerless deer, ever. 1999 is the first time we ever did that. And uh, after 1999, then we just started shooting a lot more antlerless deer than, than antler bucks. Well, that trend has been getting closer and closer. And last year, we almost flip-flopped, Christian. We almost killed more at bucks than antlerless deer for the first time since 1999. And uh, that's, that's pretty amazing. And that's not a good place to be. Uh, you know, it's, it's far better for us to be shooting more antlerless deer than, than bucks each year. So uh, that's a statistic that we watch very closely. And uh, it, it's amazing and how close those two uh, harvest numbers are getting. So to you, that's a, that's a cause for concern? Are you saying that, you know, deer uh, population numbers uh, or levels are in, you know, are in, you know, bad shape or, or concerning shape in many parts of the country? I don't think it's a, a big red flag for as far as actual harvest numbers. Um, there are certainly some places where deer herds have dropped pretty low. Um, overall, I don't think that's the case. I think part of it is, is what happened is when, when QDM really started getting going, this whole new management philosophy, you know, the pendulum swung way to the right with these just really aggressive analyst harvests. And then after that, it kind of swung back where, okay, we don't need to shoot quite that many. And uh, right now, I just think that it swung all the way back where, uh, you know, there's deer in a lot of places, and I know state wildlife agencies in a lot of places begging hunters to shoot additional animalist deer, that the hunters just simply aren't doing that. So uh, um, I think that we know more about deer herds today than ever before, and are able to collect information to, to micromanage them, which is a very good thing, and uh, I do believe that there are hunters in many areas that uh, we can help ourselves and take an extra animalist deer uh, this fall just to help balance some of those deer herds and to make sure that we're not shooting more bucks than those each year. Do, do you guys track, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to look at, you know, every aspect of this report. Is a buck to doe ratio something that you guys track? And, you know, given the decline in the antlerless harvest over a period of a decade or more, um, you know, what are you seeing in regard to the buck to doe ratio in a lot of these states? Yeah, the harvest buck to doe ratio uh, has been uh, increasing, which means, and we do monitor that. We monitor, you know, the, the number of bucks that are shot, the number of animals that are shot, the number that are shot per square mile, and then uh, the number of 
uh, antlerless deer that are shot for every buck. That gives us, we're kind of talking about in reverse, so it's kind of an antlerless deer to buck ratio. But uh, it was this past year, it was one to one, was in the harvest. So basically, for every antlerless deer that was shot, you know, 100 shot an antler buck. And, uh, you know, we killed, you know, what, almost a million deer last year, and uh, we literally shot. You know, a difference of like 11,000 more animals deer than bucks. So out of, you know, almost 6 million. So that's how close it was. So, yeah, we monitor that very closely, that, that harvest ratio. And uh, there's a lot of states shooting more bucks than animalist deer today. And I'm not talking about places like, you know, New England where, you know, it's okay to do that where they just don't have real productive habitat or, or uh, you know, and they're at the northern limit of whitetail range. But there's a lot of places, you know, like in the heartland of our country, like Kansas. Kansas hunters are killing more bucks than animalist deer. You know, hunters in South Carolina are. Hunters in Tennessee are. This should not be happening in areas like that where you have real productive deer herds. Uh, hunters in those areas should absolutely be shooting more animals deer than bucks. And uh, it's just not happening today. Oh, yeah. I mean, I even think of, um, you know, one of my favorite places to hunt is South Dakota. And if you look at South Dakota, it's kind of a funny state. When you look at the statistics, um when you factor in all the land area of that state, it would appear that deer densities aren't that high because if you see like how many deer per square mile there are, it, it looks kind of paltry. But what you don't realize until you go out there and hunt is that, well, most of the animals are concentrated along, you know, those river corridors where there's, you know, water and cover and, and ag crops. So they've got everything they need there. Whereas you can go out onto the prairie, you know, you might find mule deer out there, but most of your whitetails are going to be concentrated, you know, in, in those river corridors. And so it's nothing to go out and see, you know, 50 to 100 deer a day. And you just day after day after day seeing numbers of animals like that. And yeah, you think, you know, you could kill, you know... <laughs> 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 does out of any one of those little riverbends. I'm just talking in one riverbend. You go to the next riverbend and the next riverbend and the next riverbend, you're going to see the same thing over and over and over again. So, and I don't think they kill all that many antlerless deer out there even. You know, and actually when you look at some of those western states, if you're an eastern guy like we are, uh, I always kind of get a chuckle when you go out to some of the western states to hunt and people talk about hunting pressure and it's like it's like we're speaking two different languages because hunting pressure to somebody from a state like, you know, South Dakota or, uh, you know, even Kansas is nothing like we think of hunting pressure. So it, it's it's a bit of a chore to manage deer numbers in places like that because there really aren't that many hunters. Uh, you're right. Hunter numbers are a big difference uh, east to west. And uh, that, you know, often people don't consider that factor at all when they're asking their state wildlife agency to, to manage deer a certain way. Or, so uh, we actually did an analysis on that. And uh, just looking at it regionally, you know, the western U.S. averages about 100 per square mile. Uh, the Midwest and Southeast average about 600 per square mile. You get to the Northeast, and we average 1,100 per square mile. Uh, actually, our home state here, uh, Pennsylvania, has more hunters than anybody else. Uh, you know, we average about 2,200 per square mile. Uh, yeah, so, we're, num uh, we're number one, and that's not necessarily the category that you want to be number one in if you're an average deer hunter. Uh <laughs> At least when you're, I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, it's, it may be good that we've got a lot of hunters, but it's not always your favorite thing when you're actually climbing into a tree and you know there's lots of other folks around. <laughs> Yeah, certainly good that we have uh, all those hunters for advocates, but but you're right. Can you imagine, you know, in South Dakota, or North Dakota, or some western state, you know, where your average, you know, figure, you know, 100 per square mile or, or two, whatever the case may be, versus what you know people in the east deal with? Um, it's a very different thing and uh, provides very different opportunities for hunters and, and different expectations of what they're going to see on opening day. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Let's talk about archery a little bit. Do you guys uh, track the kill, you know, by weapon type? And what are you seeing trend-wise in archery deer harvest around the country? That's actually a very interesting point. 
Um, we do, we monitor the total deer harvest, uh, you know, whether it's shot with a firearm, uh, a muzzle loader, or, or archery or during archery season. Um, so we actually ask states and try to break out the vertical bow versus crossbow harvest. In some states do, but uh, most states don't separate the two. So kind of all of the archery harvest gets lumped in together. But it's pretty interesting in that about two-thirds of all the deer killed um, get shot with a firearm, either a rifle or a shotgun. Um, this past year, archery harvest was up to 23% of the total kill. And what's interesting about that, Christian, is 15 years ago, the archery harvest was only at 15%. So this jumped a pile uh, in the last decade and a half. And that certainly has a lot to do with expanded archery seasons, um, crossbows. Crossbows are legal in a lot more states now for a lot more hunters. So uh, that's, a, that's a big jump. And I expect that to continue to climb. You know, we're more urbanized than we've ever been. You know, there's firearm ordinances in a lot of our suburban areas. So hunters are just forced to use bows. Um, bow hunting is very popular. We have air bows now. We have crossbows now. So uh, I think that you'll continue to see that percentage of deer shot with bows continue to increase because um, it's certainly increased a bunch in the last 15 years. Now, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm not quite sure how to word it. I know from, you know, I've covered enough uh, game agency, you know, hearings and things in my day to know that, you know, from a management perspective, a biologist is going to say, you know, it really doesn't matter to me whether we kill deer with guns, bows, you know, spears or hand grenades, as long as we, you know, meet our harvest objective. So that's kind of the the big picture view from a pure population management perspective. But from a from a bow hunter's perspective or from just a, you know any hunter's perspective, is this a a good thing, a bad thing? What does this mean, you know, to me as a bow hunter, the fact that our bow harvest is continuing to tick up up up? Are we going to potentially see, you know, shorter seasons or restricted opportunity if this trend continues? Um, I think it's a good thing. Um, I, there are certainly both, some bow hunters out there that are very concerned about that increasing harvest. Um, and you're right, most state wildlife agencies will say, you know, they don't care how the, the deer die, just that the right number dies. Um, I'll add to that and say that I think a smart deer biologist will, will say, you know, but hey, I want to listen to what my hunters are saying and, and what their, their values are and their opinions on these different uh, weapon types. So uh, because I think, you know, the hunters have to be in tune with the agencies to be able to, to make sure, you know, the good parts of, of the whole process. Um, so I'm a diehard bow hunter. You know, uh, I have never hunted with a, with a crossbow. However, I purchased one uh, for my young daughter to be able to hunt with me uh, when she was 10 years old. So uh, even though, you know, I'm, I haven't hunted them, I hunt with my vertical bow, I was very pleased that Pennsylvania allowed crossbows to be used so that, you know, she could do that with me. Um, I also think that given that we're losing hunter numbers, you know, crossbows are a great uh, way for, for many new hunters to, to get into the game who may become future uh, vertical bow hunters. Um, so uh, I, I have a lot of friends who just absolutely despise crossbows and hate them. Um, I'm not one of those guys. Uh, I recognize that we need to have hunters, and if we can entice new hunters or, or even older uh, hunters to, to, to bow hunt, they you know, be out when the seasons are a little nicer. Um, I see that as a good thing. I recognize that not all people do, but uh, that's kind of where I am on it. And uh, there's a lot of people taking advantage of it because back in 2012, we actually asked states, you know, hey, can, can uh, archery hunters use crossbows during at least a portion of the archery season? And back in 2012, uh, only 57% of the states allowed it. So just over half of the states did. We asked that question again this year on a report, and that has jumped up to uh, 76%. So three out of four states today allow crossbows during at least a portion of their archery season for the majority of hunters. You know, you don't need a special note from your doctor or anything like that. So, oh, yeah. And, and you know, I'm sure that you guys see, you know, the trend across the country. I know here in Pennsylvania, if you look at total license sales over the last five years, there's been a modest decline. But if you look at the archery license sales during the same period, there's been a fairly significant increase. So even as we're seeing the overall number of hunters, uh, you know, on a slow, steady decline, the 
woods are more crowded than ever during archery season, which means that we're bringing, you know, obviously we're not recruiting new hunters because we've got a declining base, but we've got more people hunting archery. That says to me that there are a lot of uh, firearm hunters or maybe younger hunters, like you say, and I've experienced the same thing with my own kids, who may be taking advantage of the fact that the crossbow is an accessible, you know, weapon now and, and taking advantage of the opportunities that are there during that archery season. That's right. And I, I believe the last couple of years in Pennsylvania, I think uh, crossbow hunters have taken more than half of the, the archery harvest. I think I saw a um, uh, game commission present that um, at some place. So, uh, um, you know, if that's the case, that, like, that number likely will, will continue to climb. So, uh it definitely makes it, uh, the archery season very different, and uh, you know, it's certainly a big issue that, for the Game Commission that, and DNRs everywhere and our hunters uh, to have the discussion about. Yeah. And, you know, looking at some of your top states of harvest by bow, you know, like the first four are not surprising. Um, you know, as you mentioned, just the urbanization of our country and, you know, bows obviously let you hunt in more areas where it may not be safe to hunt with a gun. So you got New Jersey at number one, 58% of their 2016 harvest was by archery equipment and then you've got Connecticut at at 50% another you know sort of urban suburban state Ohio at 44 and Massachusetts at 42 um the next couple on the list are, are kind of surprising in a way. you got Illinois and Kansas, both at 37% of the overall harvest by archery equipment. And you'd think of those, those are states with, you know, a much lower hunter density, especially Kansas. Um, is that just a function of those states not having particularly long uh, firearms hunting seasons? I think there's a couple things there. One is that they certainly have a lot of, of uh, archery opportunity, um, much longer certainly than the firearm seasons are. They have a long history, you know, just of a real strong bow hunting culture. And, um, and obviously people are going there to uh, to shoot big deer. And uh, in many cases, that's a lot easier to do during archery season than once you get into firearm season. So uh, I think those are the things that, that are really playing into both of those states uh, being uh, nearly 40% archery harvest. Um. What uh, let's let's kind of shift gears here and, and talk a little bit about you know some of the the other management issues that are affecting the deer hunting community. I know that you had uh, found some pretty informa- uh, interesting information in terms of what states are restricting in terms of like hunting. Um, technologies or different products that maybe have come onto the scene in recent years that are, you know, a little more high tech or out of the box and, and, and states are being forced to adapt to the new reality of everything that we as hunters uh, are carrying with us into the field. Yeah, and you know, and trail cameras are one of the biggest things going now, and, and obviously the technology there is just going crazy with what companies are developing for tech, or for uh, for cameras, what users can get, you know, checking cameras without actually having to go visit them. And so uh, we start hearing rumors of different states, you know, talking about outlawing some trail cameras during the hunting season. So uh, we ask states, you know, hey, uh, uh, can hunters use trail cameras during your hunting season? And uh, the vast majority of states said yes, you know, they absolutely can use them. And we said, okay, well, how about the if the trail camera has texting capabilities. And what we found is that uh, there's, a, there's a few states that do not allow you to use a textable camera, you know, during the hunting season. Um, you know, they consider that crossing the line from, uh, from the ethics line and fair chase. So in, uh, in Arizona and Colorado and New Hampshire, uh, it is illegal for hunters to use a trail camera that is able to text you a picture uh, during the hunting season. And a lot of Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm looking at your chart here in the report, and you say that there's some restrictions on use in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Kansas, and Quebec. Um, Like, I don't know what it is. I'm interested if you happen to know in Kansas. I know in Pennsylvania, we have a rule. It's a general rule, so I'm wondering how this ties into that, that you're not supposed to use any kind of an electronic device to locate game while you're hunting. So how do they allow the use of these cellular trail cameras and still abide by that rule or do you do you know being a fellow Pennsylvanian I don't know exactly how uh, how Pennsylvania law words that and uh, um, yeah and I don't know exactly 
exactly what those other restrictions were. That's what the, the agency guys uh, included on the survey when they sent it back. Yeah. That there was their law must be something else that's legally binding with that. But uh, but they answered the question that they were legal. Just uh, so I'm not sure I get to ask what the, the other specifications for that are. Well, it's funny, you know. I run I run one here all the time, and you know, so I I don't know what that line is. You know, is it okay to check it when you get out of bed in the morning and see the latest? But are you not supposed to check it while you're on your tree stand? You know, where's the line? And it does call up some interesting questions. And then in Kansas, I killed a great buck out in Kansas this past fall, and I know that the guy that I was hunting with, uh, my buddy, he was running a, a, a Bushnell wireless camera and the buck that I killed we had camera pictures of that deer at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, before I got in stand that day and that buck was working a scrape uh, just right by where I ended up killing him that afternoon so I mean <laughs> there's some usefulness to those things isn't there all there certainly is and uh, you know there's a lot of hunters that are trying to uh, kind of piggyback off some of the technology that the fishing industry has, has been using forever and uh, and that's often one of the arguments you know placed on this well you know where states are saying you can't use these is uh you know I've, I've heard hundreds say, well geez you know anglers can use fish finders you know I'll be in my boat and see that there's fish right underneath me and that's legal you know how is, how is that actually different from a camera that takes a picture you know uh, sure I know that deer is there or was there or whatever but is that really helping me you know aid in the harvest so uh there's some pretty hard questions like that that agencies kind of have to sift through and uh, because it's not an easy answer for sure. Yeah. Well, another one that you had mentioned, you know, before we started the show today was drones. Um, you know, I, I don't see, I mean, like being in the industry, you know, and I know a lot of people who have, you know, do a lot of video work, television shows or web shows and stuff. And I understand why those folks would want to use drones, even if it's just to capture some you know, scenic shots and things like that for their show. But I don't run into like the average, you know, weekend warrior going out there with a drone. But like a lot of states have have banned these things. Is it really that big of an issue in, in the hunting community? It is. And actually, uh, we had that particular question we asked. And obviously, they can't stop you from using them for scouting. Um, but, you know, certainly can from the hunting end. So we asked, you know, are they legal for use uh, during hunting season, you know, for, for a hunting purpose? And uh, 42 states answered that question. And uh, 16 of them um, do allow drones. So so far, less than half of the states allow them. So more than half the states outlaw drones, you know, uh, during the hunting season for any hunting purposes. So, um and I think that there's a lot of hunters in those states that are probably a little confused about exactly what is or what is not allowed. And then there's probably some agency folks that aren't, aren't real clear on that either. But uh, that was a, that number actually surprised me. I figured it was probably a few states that had outlawed them, uh, similar to the, the textable trail cameras. But, uh, you know, more than half of the states don't allow the drones. So uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big number. And then because the drones, as you said, have just exploded. You can't, you know, see any videos anymore without footage that was provided by drones. And um, I know a lot of hunters who do use them to scout. So uh, I think that we're going to hear a lot more about that topic uh, in the coming years. Well, it's interesting looking at your map and the report here too. Most of the most of your western states uh, are states that don't allow them, and most of the you know the area where they are allowed are kind of scattered uh, towards the southeast, uh, even up into Pennsylvania, and then uh, you know places where I don't think they'd be nearly as useful. You know, when I think of like what what I'd use a drone to scout for, I think yeah, for elk or mule deer out west where the terrain is pretty open. And if you get that drone up there with a camera, you can really see a lot of country. I mean, uh, I don't even care if you could use one here in Pennsylvania. I mean, to the extent that the deer that I'm hunting are out in open fields, most of that is going to be after dark. You know, we're hunting a lot more woodland here. And even if I did have a drone flying around, you're not going to see anything for the most part, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, in general, the states that allow them tend to be a lot more wooded uh, than the states that don't allow them. Not nearly as much open land. And also not nearly as much, you know, big, uh, rugged, extensive country. So um, so I think both of those probably play into to some of the places where they are allowed uh, versus not allowed. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... Uh Deer diseases, you know, that's always a big issue. Um, you know, of course, from year to year, we can, um, 
you know, we worry about things like EHD, which can take a really big toll. You know, you get the regional outbreaks of, of uh, hemorrhagic disease, and you can lose a lot of deer in concentrated areas. And sometimes when that hits, you know, like trophy states, you know, I know like Illinois, where I hunt, has had a, a big outbreak one once uh, not too long ago, and it really set things back, different areas like that. And then we've got sort of longer-term issues like, like chronic wasting disease. Um, what have you been seeing in terms of deer diseases, both, you know, short-term and long-term implications, Kip? Well, let's start with, with hemorrhagic disease. And uh, we have, the last few years, we've been seeing, you know, an increase in prevalence of that, um, many more states being impacted by it. You know, and, and I graduated from Penn State back in uh, the, the early 90s, kind of dating myself with that. But I vividly remember learning about hemorrhagic disease, and it was discussed as a, a disease of, of southeastern deer. You know, it had never been confirmed in Pennsylvania. They didn't even talk about it up here. And, uh that is very different today. It is all over the Whitetails range. You know, confirmed as, as far north as into Ontario this year for the first time, you know, up to Connecticut. So uh, it has really gone north. Um, so every deer in the southeast, they're exposed to it every year. It's not that big of a deal in most cases. But, boy, as we start seeing more deer further north, we're just, our deer are just naive to the disease. You know, they haven't seen it as much. They're not as exposed to it. So they don't have the antibodies to fight it off like, like many southern deer do. So where we start seeing much more bigger die-offs than uh, in, this, in 2017, um, there were several states, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Tennessee, and West Virginia, that really got hammered in parts of those states by the disease. So uh, there, there was a lot of deer that died. Oh, not a good thing. Um, we actually are seeing a little more mortality even in the southeastern U.S. because they have now a new strain of the disease. So even though those deer down there have been exposed to this forever, um, this new strain is brand new to them. So it's kind of like our northern deer. You know, they haven't seen it before, and, and uh, so they're, they're a lot more susceptible. So uh, there's some big news going on with, with hemorrhagic disease, and that's something others certainly need to be aware of. But... Uh, as you said, that's not nearly as big of an issue as chronic wasting disease. And unfortunately, we just continue to see that spread and uh, are forced to, to, I guess, deal with it on a, a far too increasing uh, common basis. Well, let's uh, let me take a step back to hemorrhagic disease real quick before we get into the CWD because I wanted to ask you a question. I mean, hemorrhagic disease, my understanding is... You know, it typically flares up during the hotter, drier months of the year because the, you know, the deer will concentrate around more limited water sources. They get bit by those midges that carry the disease. There's really not anything that we can do as hunters or even wildlife agencies to, to prevent that. I mean, there's no practical way to go out and do any kind of treatment on all the, the water sources where deer would possibly congregate. I mean, am I wrong there? No, you're correct. Uh, there's, there's nothing that we can do from that end. Um, fortunately, you know, all deer don't die from it. In, uh, and when, you know, it does hit areas and kills deer, it tends to be pretty uh, local. And uh, so, you know, it may hit right where you are, but, you know, five miles down the road, uh, maybe nothing. So the only real thing that as hunters we can do is just be aware of what's going on in the areas that we hunt. And um, because it happens so late in the summer and just before deer season, you know, some folks will ask our wildlife agencies to all alter the harvest rates for that fall, there's just no time for them to be able to do that. However, as hunters, you know, if we recognize, hey, I found a lot of dead deer in my area, you know, we certainly can help out by maybe harvesting fewer animals deer that year. You know, maybe I was going to shoot two this year, and man, there's a pile of dead deer in my area. Maybe I'll only shoot one or Maybe I'll shoot like none. Right. So there's certainly the chance or opportunity for us to, you know, to help from that perspective. But outside of that, Christian, yeah, there's really nothing that we can do. I mean, it's a virus, so there's no, you know, vaccine for it, you know, or anything like that. So just being aware and reporting it to our state wildlife agencies um, are the best things that as hunters that we can do. Well, the other thing, yeah, and the other thing about EHD, uh, you know, unlike CWD, is that with EHD, you know, uh, like you said, not all the deer die, and once it runs through, it's not necessarily then going to be endemic in the population, right? One deer is not giving it to another. Um, a doe's not passing that to her fawns. Like, they're going to be born sick. It just, it's like, like you said, it's a virus. It's like you get sick and you either die or you get better, you know, and then, then that's it. 
Nope, that's absolutely right. So, and that is a huge difference between that and uh, and CWD. Now, now CWD, of course, it's been in the news so much over the last, you know, decade plus. And, and I would think that most of my listeners, you know, have some idea of what chronic wasting disease is. Um, you know, just for those who might not be, you know, it's a it's a brain disease. You know, it's a de- degenerative condition where there, you it breaks down. You know, the brain matter, right? They gradually lose control of their faculties and unfortunately every every deer that gets CWD is eventually going to die from it or in a lot of cases I know from the, as they've been studying deer populations where CWD prevalence is relatively high um, a lot of times those deer before the disease actually kills them they might get killed by a hunter or, or killed on a roadway uh, or, or succumb to predation just because the you know the impact of that disease makes the deer you know it kind of like erodes their survival instincts so they are more susceptible to maybe die from some other causes before they actually get to those end stages of the disease itself. Um, what do you What do you guys see in, in terms of uh, the the prevalence of CWD camp across the country? I know that like just this week, I think Mississippi announced their very first case. Yeah, unfortunately, the disease continues to spread in, in the new states and in the new areas and existing states. Um, Mississippi now has it. Um, Montana was a brand new state in, in 2017 that got it. So uh, 25 states now have it either in the, in the wild or are in captive populations. So it just continues to spread. And the important things about it is no vaccine, no cure. It's 100% fatal. And uh, none of those are good for the future of deer hunting. Um. Now, in a lot of cases in the past, it was always linked to, um, you know, maybe the disease getting into a wild population because of a captive operation that had some CWD positive deer nearby. As we see more and more states crop up, Kip, has there been, has there always been sort of like a real direct linkage of where the source of that disease came from? Or are we seeing CWD being detected now through these testing programs in areas that might seem to be isolated from other areas where we know the disease already existed. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, we continue to find uh, new farms that, that, that test positive from where we're just moving animals from one place to another. Um, in many cases, we, we find it in the wild. It tends to be near a captive facility that also has tested positive, um, but not always. Um, there's some areas you know, we'll, we'll detect in the wild you know, with no other known positives around it. And um, it could be that there's so much illegal movement of captive deer, so it's possible that you know it was moved that way. And hunters, we continue to move carcasses, you know, from cross state lines. Many cases when we're not supposed to, so uh, you know we could be unknowingly moving it, you know, in the carcass of the animal that we shot. So um, lots of different ways that it can get to a new place. So in some of those areas where it just shows up and there's no other known area around it, um, we'll probably never know how it got there. And uh, you know, the reality is it probably doesn't matter. It's there now. We have to deal with it. But uh, man, you know, as hunters, the two best things that we could possibly do is just stop moving any live animals uh, by hunters or state wildlife agencies. You know, West Virginia is moving elk in from Arizona. You know, so we don't need to be moving animals like that at all until we get a practical, you know, a reliable live animal test. But if we stop moving live animals and we just stop moving the high-risk parts of carcasses, you know, as, as we go out of state and hunt and move, um, those two things more than anything else would help us start to slow the spread of this disease until uh, we learn more about it and can get a better handle on, on how to manage it. Yeah, and of course the thing about CWD that maybe is the most scary of all is exactly what you just touched on is even uh, after, you know, a number of years of studying this thing, we still don't know a ton about it, and sometimes the, con- the, the, the information that does come out can be confusing or even scary. Like, I, I know that one of the big headlines uh, in 2017 regarding CWD was this ongoing research project, uh, I think up somewhere in Canada, where they found that some monkeys actually contracted CWD just by eating 
meat from infected deer, right? That is correct, yeah. Macaques, uh, which is a primate more closely to humans uh, than, than any other primate that they're allowed to do research on. So, uh, so yeah, so that certainly has uh, the eye of, of deer researchers and, and managers and hunters everywhere. So, uh, so still no confirmation that it can jump the species barrier to humans, but uh, as that test showed, uh, it may be a little closer uh, than many of us think. Well, that to me is the... I mean, that's the game changer, right? I mean, if that's confirmed, that, that kind of changes everything in terms of how we all as hunters think about shooting deer and eating deer, you know? That's for sure. And absolutely, you know, suddenly we couldn't eat these deer anymore, then uh, our whole wallet and the system uh, in North America would, would go down the tubes uh, in a hurry. So uh, let's hope that that never, ever happens and uh, that we find a way uh, to, to battle this disease uh, before anything like that ever comes to fruition yeah what uh now i'm gonna actually be i don't know if i think we may have discussed this before but i i like to give my little sort of contrarian viewpoint on cwd and get your reaction to it kip and here's what i mean by that okay we know we know that um okay the disease was first identified in colorado in the late 60s correct that's correct, yep. And so, basically, in the grand scheme of all of, you know, human history, this thing's been around for barely a blip on the radar that we know of, okay? I mean, it's almost certain the disease had to exist in wild, you know, cervid populations for some period of time before, you know, science identified it. But give or take 50, 60 years that we've even known about CWD, and... You know, we've only started monitoring for it, even testing, bothering to test throughout most of the whitetails range in like the last 10 to 15 years. Is it not at least theoretically possible that this disease, you know, has existed in a certain level in a lot of these areas in the past and we just never really paid that much attention to it? It's certainly unlikely, and, and the reason for that is just given how the, the disease now is moving and how we're, we're watching it move. Um, so yeah, it was identified in 1967 there in Colorado. So uh, even before that, though, you know, they were still monitoring other wildlife diseases. So if it was always present and these other deer were dying, they just didn't know what it was, they would have still had a lot of those deer on record as, as being, you know, taken to look at by veterinary services. So, uh, you know, those, those deer just weren't there. So when it got east of the Mississippi River in 2001, fall 2001, when they, they killed it in Wisconsin, since then, you know, so for the last 17 years, we've, we've looked at it really, really hard across the Whitetails range. And even in those areas, you know, well, now we're finding a bunch of it. We know that it wasn't there even a decade ago, or at least most likely wasn't there a decade ago. So there's enough uh, research now on it and just enough data looking at it that uh, the vast majority of disease folks who study the movement of a disease like that are all in agreement that now this disease hasn't been here forever. This is, this is a very new phenomenon that, that we're experiencing now. Now, what about the impact on populations? I know that there's, you know, a lot of ongoing research around the country and, and, you know, it's maybe too early in a lot of these eastern states to really know the long-term impact. But again, if we just go back to Colorado, you said, okay, we've known about it since 1967. Um, like, as a hunter, I know, like, okay, uh, there's still deer uh, all over Colorado, and I don't know if there's any area at all, you know, where deer have been completely wiped out by this disease, and, and I, there's lots of guys who still, you know, hunt deer in Colorado, and, and certainly those hunters are eating those deer, and, and we don't know of, you know, a bunch of hunters that have gotten sick or anything like that. I mean, is it... That would seem to me to kind of be in contrast to some of the really, you know, gloomy outlooks or predictions that I hear, you know, from other people that are really concerned about the disease. I mean, where's the where's the truth on all this? Yeah, if you take a look at you know, actual population declines caused by CWD, um, Colorado has now been documenting, and Wyoming has been documenting this in both whitetails and mule deer, you know, 14 to 20% declines annually um, just by the disease. I think part of the reason that it's just kind of built into that is because 
Well, first of all, out west, our deer population just exists at far lower densities than we have in the east in most cases. So in this disease, just the way that it works, it takes a while to, to just infiltrate the entire deer herd to build to a point where you really start seeing these population-level declines. And the problem is, is once it gets to that point, that uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. So we are now at that point in some of those western states, and, uh, and Wisconsin is about at that tipping point, too. Um, you can look at a lot of that state in the endemic area where they first had CWD, you know, and it's now in 40 to 50 percent of the bucks in those populations. It's in, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the does in those populations. So uh, the actual scientific peer-reviewed population decline that we now see in the West, we are right on the verge of seeing those in Wisconsin and uh, hopefully not too many other states in the near future, but uh, we are just about to see those. And, you know, that's a great argument, and that's why a lot of people have said, well, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. You know, I still see deer. I don't see any sick deer. Uh, the vast majority of deer that have CWD, um, you know, you never see a sick deer. Most hunters will never see one that's sick because most of the time they have the disease, they don't show any of the symptoms. They don't show any of those until the very end, and then they go downhill very quickly and die. Mm. So, uh you know, they, they look healthy, think, man, how can I mean you're wrong? But uh, the reality of it is, it's just that disease, you know, is building inside individual deer and these Wisconsin, those populations, to the point where when they start really tipping over, uh, we're in big trouble. So, so, do you, so do you think that, like, in the next... 10, 10 years, the next decade across, you know, from Wisconsin all the way through the east where, you know, we've seen CWD, you know, showing up and spreading in recent years, that this could be like a really critical time for, you know, deer populations in those states. Uh, certainly in Wisconsin. I don't think any of the other states in the east have it at anywhere near the, the prevalence rate that the, the Wisconsin does. And at least spread enough where you're going to start seeing, you know, big declines like that. Um, but within the next decade in Wisconsin, I believe we absolutely are going to be seeing population declines from it. Um, fortunately, Wisconsin has a lot of deer, so it can withstand some of that. But, uh, but there's no doubt that you're going to start seeing some, some pretty significant decline in the deer herd straight because of CWD in Wisconsin within the next 10 years. And, uh, and that's why it's so important to, to stop this, you know, in, in these other states that either just have it at low prevalence rates, you know, like Michigan now, it's fighting like crazy to try to keep it in these isolated areas. So, uh, yeah, the future for Wisconsin is, is, is very different from now we're talking about today with regard to deer harvest. So do you think that Wisconsin could be like a... Uh, like a case study for the potential impact in a lot of other states that, you know, might look similar in terms of deer density and, and habitat and topography. You know, if you take a look at a state like Wisconsin, it's not that much different than a lot of areas of, you know, Pennsylvania or Ohio or New York. Um, you know, so if we were to experience, you know, a similar type of prevalence, then we could look back and see what might be occurring in, in Wisconsin and say, hey, this is this is all of our future if we don't figure out a way to get a handle on this thing. Now that's right. And you can go to the Wisconsin DNR website and look at the, uh, the graphs of the CWD prevalence rate in the You know, in many of them, you know, for example, say, you know, back in 2001 or 2002 when they first confirmed it, you know, 1% or less than 1% of the adult bucks had the, the disease. And in some of those counties today, you know, it's 40 or 50% of the adult bucks. So those growth curves are just skyrocketing, you know, and there's nothing to suggest that any of that is going to slow down anytime soon. We have no reason to believe that, well, next year, oh, it'll peak at 50 or 55%. So it's just going to continue to climb. And yeah. the no graphs, you know, are behind them, certainly at a lower level, but they're skyrocketing at the same level. So uh, yeah. there's nothing in any of those to suggest that the disease is going to slow down anytime soon. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. Well, and the thing is, you know, just to kind of provide a little bit more information, the reason for that, right, is because the the infectious agent, right, the prions, these these abnormal proteins, they 
they're present, you know, in all the deer's, you know, feces and saliva and urine and things like that. And then they become sort of endemic in the environment itself and they're very hard to destroy. So that's why you see that sort of over a period of time, right? You get this exponential growth in infection rates because there's more and more of the, you know, disease agent that's present, you know, both in terms of in, you know, actual live animals on the ground, as well as just uh, latent in the environment, whether that's in the soil, uh, a food source, etc. That's exactly right. Nope, you're exactly right, Christian. Um, so kind of depressing in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, that we even have to discuss that sort of thing. And then that ties into sort of a topic I'd like to wrap up the discussion with, which is uh, decline in hunter numbers, because that's another depressing topic. But it's one that we certainly have to address if we're going to talk about deer and deer hunting. And that is um, we are losing uh, deer hunters across the country. And it's not anything, you know, that started happening yesterday, but we know that we're really facing a crisis with the baby boomer generation, you know, starting to retire out of our sport. We're not replacing, uh, you know, those folks, uh, you know, even close to a one to one ratio with younger people. And then you've got other issues like CWD, you know, that are only threatening to further exacerbate that, you know, whether it's disease, whether it's uh, increasing, you know, urbanization and suburbanization, whether it's, you know, the, the increasing prevalence of technology in our, in our society. So people are more, you know, tied into their, their smartphones maybe than the outdoors. I mean, there's so many things that are seem to be working against us, Kip. What are you guys seeing in terms of deer hunter numbers and what can we do as a deer hunting community to try and like, you know, keep ourselves relevant, you know, going into the future? certainly a big discussion and, uh, and there's no question that we're losing hunter numbers um, the real question is you know how many are we losing you know and, and how quickly are they falling off because you're right as baby boomers we age out we're not replacing ourselves at anywhere near the rate that, that we need to um, and a lot of it is, is we continue to just try to replace ourselves with, with people that look just like us and, uh, and that's just simply not going to work in the future you know as a percentage of the, of the population you know white males are declining um, but we make up the majority of hunters and unfortunately when we recruit somebody um, most of us try to recruit a white male you know that kind of looks like us and kind of acts like us and well certainly that's a good thing to recruit them we need to reach out and recruit you know a much wider net to, to, to get other folks involved and and certainly youth programs are are very key with this and then that's where most uh, conservation organizations go is you know try to, to grab more youth and, and, and i applaud them for that but i think one of the things that we really need to do you know to move the needle on this is um we need to start trying to recruit adult hunters as well. And in many cases, it's adult hunters that they don't necessarily look just like me or you. And uh, folks who haven't had an opportunity to hunt or didn't grow up in that environment, you know, but, but may like to. And, and what we see with people trying this is that when they're recruiting adult hunters, you know, if you try to recruit a kid, okay, yes, you may have him or her interested, but, you know, they still need a ride to go hunting, they need a place to go hunting, they need to get some money from mom and dad to buy a hunting coat. However, if we recruit an adult hunter, suddenly now, you know, they have more opportunity for time, some resources to buy that. They can then take their child. So I think adult onset hunters are recruiting other adults is where we really need to, to focus, to try to move the needle, to, to get more hunters involved so that we can have a much more uh, defendable population base in the future of hunters and somebody that's a little more sustainable than we appear to have right now. So what's your practical advice to, to each of us? You know, what can, it's the old, you know, what can I do? Uh, what can, what I, can I do? And one thing that we have found successful are these, uh, these share your hunt programs that QDMA has where you know, we can take somebody who has not hunted hunting, uh, share venison with them, allow them an opportunity to procure their own venison. Um, I know that you eat a lot of venison. My family eats a ton of venison. That is often the best way to get somebody uh, exposed to hunting is somebody who is not a hunter but would love the opportunity you know, to procure their own food. And uh, so that often 
is a conversation that leads to you know, somebody saying, sure, you know what, I'm, I'll try this or I'll do that. And, uh, you know, as hunters, um, we're, we're stingy on our time. We think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time trying to teach somebody else or, or share with somebody else. But uh, that's kind of, a, you know, not a very uh, one-sided uh, view of what we want to do. So uh, we need to give a little bit of our own time to others like that to get more folks involved and uh, you know so that we do have more ambassadors for hunting in the future and more people uh, to, to make sure that they vote you know at the polls for, for pro hunting issues and things that we really care about so, well yeah I, and, and you know one of the things about this issue is it, it can be a really tough sell to get people concerned about this and here's what I mean by that <laughs> Again, let's go back to one of the trends, particularly here in Pennsylvania, regarding archery season. Our, our license buyer base as a whole is declining, and yet the archery woods have never been more crowded. And so to try and convince somebody who's, you know, you, you tell a guy, hey, listen, we got to get more people into hunting here. You know, we're a dying breed. And he, he's thinking, what are you talking about? You know, I, I got 10 acres to hunt on and every single one of my neighbors and three of their friends are trying to kill the same deer I'm trying to kill. And they don't, they can't see the forest for the trees. Do you know what I mean? Because we all, each one of us tends to evaluate the state of hunting based on our personal experience. So if you killed a big buck last year, deer hunting's better than it's ever been. If you didn't see very many deer, there aren't very many deer. You know, if there's a lot of people who hunt in your area, there's too many hunters. And, and it's like, we, we, we've got to look at the big picture and realize that, you know, yeah, there may be a lot of hunters in your neighborhood, but most of us are probably 45 or older. And, you know, we've got to, you know, think about what it's going to look like 10, 20 years down the road, because it's going to be a lot different. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, that's often one of the ways then, you know, is to take somebody, you know, something other than deer hunting. And a perfect example of my, my recent uh, QMA branch meeting, we were talking about doing a share your hunt program this year and having all the officers and folks involved there take another adult hunting. And uh, everybody's like, we want to we want to help out and recruit hunters. And as soon as that's mentioned, it got really quiet because everybody's thinking, oh, God, I don't want to give up my deer season. So I said, hey, let's, you know, deer hunting is not always the best first thing to take somebody hunting anyway. Don't take anybody deer hunting, but hey, could you take somebody, you know, spring turkey hunting for a day? Could you take them squirrel hunting? Could you take them coyote hunting, rabbit hunting? And all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh yeah, I could definitely do that, and I'd be all about that. Yeah, we need to get a new, we need Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young to start a squirrel category and really pump up the popularity. Because <laughs> right. I'll tell you what, Pennsylvania has some world-class squirrel hunting. And it's not nearly taken advantage of <laughs> like it ought to be. So. You got it. I agree. We all, we'd all, all be a little better if we uh, spent a few extra days small game hunting this year. Hey, listen, last question for you. So we've talked about an awful lot, you know, from harvest trends to buck age structure to diseases and, and, and declining hunter base. Look into your crystal ball, Kip. You know, this is what you do, right? I mean, this is your full-time job thinking about deer and deer hunting. Look into your crystal ball and, and tell me what the future of, of deer hunting is. I mean, there's a lot of challenges out there. Uh, what do you see? There are certainly a lot of challenges and a lot of really big issues, but uh, but I think there's a lot of opportunities, too. And, and I, I'm an optimist, but uh, you know, there's a lot of things to be really excited about right now about deer hunting. You know, with just where the age structure is and different opportunities that hunters have. Um, hunters are more engaged than they've ever been before with their state wildlife deer programs. And they're enhancing habitat at record levels. They're spending more time in the woods than before. So, uh, sure, there's challenges, but, but every generation of deer managers and and deer hunters have had challenges to face. And uh, I'm fully confident that we'll face these head-on as well. You know, we'll deal with CWD and hemorrhagic disease and, and habitat loss and these other things. But uh, um, I, for one, and certainly, I don't know if I've ever been as excited about hunting as I am today. And, uh, and you know, I look forward to, to, to continue to hunt even more this year than I did last year. So I think there's a lot of really good things out there and a lot of reasons to be excited and, uh, and reasons to, to get others excited about what we love too. Yeah, and uh, and obviously, if people want to get involved, uh, one of the best ways for people to do that is to go to the QDMA website at QDMA.com, right? You can become a quality deer management 
Management Association member. You can check out a lot of great resources there, of which the 2018 Whitetail Report is one. And if you really want to have a good time, you guys are having your annual convention coming up here this summer, right, Kim? That's right, yeah. Our annual national convention is in July, so uh, we'd, we'd like to have a summer convention. Um, great opportunity for, for folks to come and learn more about you know, managing deer and managing habitat and meeting other like-minded hunters. So, uh, um, yeah, we'd love to have every deer hunter. You know, uh, we say that's QMA is where deer hunters belong um, because we have something for everybody. You know, it's about helping each other, having better hunting opportunities for everybody in the fall. So, folks, uh, and you, and you, come check us out. We'd love to have you be a member of QDMA. Yeah, and you guys are going to be down in the Big Easy this year, right? That's right. We'll be uh, in New Orleans in July, so uh, it'll be nice and hot, but uh, we'll be inside uh, swapping deer stories and, and talking deer, so... Uh it doesn't matter if it's hot outside. Uh, we can certainly have a good time doing that inside. The weather will be hot and the beer will be cold and Kip's buying for everybody. So That's right. Kip the deer stories will be even better. <laughs> well, listen, my friend, you know, from one Pennsylvania guy to another, I can tell you that it's always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, it's funny to think uh, how we've both uh, found our way in this industry. I remember way back in the day when I first met you on that goose hunt with Roger Hayslip and uh, it's uh, it's great to, to see what you've done, and I've certainly been blessed. And let's hope uh, for our sakes and the sake of everybody who cares about deer hunting that, uh, you know, your your vision comes true and, and we'll all be doing this still here 20, 30 years down the road. Right, that sounds good, and I remember that goose hunt vividly. Uh, that was a fun morning, and uh, um, I look uh, forward to hunting with you again sometime. Absolutely, Kip. Listen, God bless you. Uh, have a great day, and uh, I'm sure our paths will be crossing again real soon. Sounds great, Kirsten. Thank you. I'll see you. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand, or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.